Hi, welcome to 25 and not famous question mark. I spoke to someone I've known for a really long time since I was about 14 years old because he used to do the tech for shows that I was in when I was at school. So I had Sean Thomas Ford on the show and we spoke all about his experience of working in theatre production and sort of climbing up that ladder literally and metaphorically over many, many years. And it was an interview that really surprised me because I kind of expected it to be about what it feels like to be at the peak of your career and looking around and all about the kind of success of what he's done so far. And actually it kind of ended up more being about that he wants to start again at the bottom of another ladder, although he's not sure what that is and kind of looking at life as something that you do in these really interesting increments and get to have all these different experiences and that weirdly came at a perfect time for me because I am currently in the process of basically shedding most parts of my life and looking around and thinking about what I want to do next and yeah what I wanted to talk a little bit about today before we get into the episode is that I had been really really set on the idea of moving to Berlin something that I do which is a really bad trait that I am trying to lesson is that when I'm excited about something or I'm working on something I really start to associate with it and pin a lot of expectation on it and as I start to do that I get excited I get overexcited and I start to talk to more and more people about it I start to share that enthusiasm and then they all get really excited about it and then when something changes and it doesn't turn out to be the way that you thought it was going to be or you start to realize that maybe that's going to be a lot harder than you think Everyone that you know is already really excited about it and they're going to keep bringing it up and they're going to keep asking about it. I've done this before when I've been writing plays and I was writing a play about birds. I think I maybe started this in 2018. I still have people who say what's happening with the bird play, okay? Let it go. When it's ready to be written, I'm going to write it. I am not currently working on the bird play. Any fans of the bird play out there, I'm so sorry. This is not our year. This is not the year of the bird play one year the world will be ready, I'll be ready to write it, it's not happening right now. But aside from the traumatic bird play, something that I've been doing this about recently is the concept of moving to Berlin. I've actually wanted to move to Berlin since I was 14 years old and I went there on a school trip, mostly because it was my first real memory of being abroad. This was like, I was 14, I was in, in my mind a complete adult and I was in a new city and I was like, I'm going to move here in, you know, approximately two years when I am completely flown the nest and a full-fledged adult. Here I am right now, sat in the same bedroom, recording a podcast for no one. So things don't always turn out how you planned. And that is a lesson that I learned when it came to telling everyone that I was moving to Berlin, because a little part of me knew that Brexit had happened. A little part of me had registered that fact. Multiple people had said to me, quite hard to move to Berlin after Brexit actually. When Brexit was happening, I knew multiple people that actually moved specifically to Berlin because they knew after Brexit it would be harder and if you moved before the end of 2020, you would still have freedom of movement. And I just let all that wash over me. I thought that's not a problem for today. Cue a global pandemic, which means that I can't move to Berlin for two years. I had always told myself I would move before I was 25. Allowing for pandemic stoppage time 
I have until, you know, realistically probably March 2024. If we're being, you know, if we're giving two years of pandemic stoppage time, we're giving one year, I've got till March 2023. I'm not feeling great about that. But if we give the full two years, then it's March 2024. I hadn't really looked into it because I didn't really want to think about work visas. And I thought I'm going traveling. I'm definitely going traveling. Um, I want to move to Berlin after I get back, but I've got time, you know, I've got a lot of privilege, my very kind parents are giving me a huge safety net and letting me stay in their nice house in Manchester, I can just come home, you know, be completely sheltered, um, Gen Z, millennial, both of, applicable to both, and work out the whole Germany thing then I'm not going to look at it before I go I'm not going to look at it I'm just going to tell literally everyone I know that I'm moving to Berlin in March and people are going to start planning when they're going to come and visit and I'm not going to have looked into it one little bit and I'm so fine with that and then one day I was supposed to be making a spreadsheet that I didn't want to make um, and I was working from home I decided to google it on my lunch break which quickly turned into an entire afternoon which I then had to make up um, in other time because I did absolutely nothing but furiously Google different kinds of um, allowances for German visas, German fluency exams, and then got into the fact that I am technically Irish, but my granddad is not on my mum's birth certificate. And I was Googling such things as what happens if your granddad is Irish but wasn't on your mum's birth certificate? and now they're dead, so they can't be added, um, and it's after Brexit, and you want to get a passport for freedom of movement to move to Berlin. And do you know what? Google doesn't know the answer to that. We found the question that can't be answered via Google. Um, I tried to call the Irish Citizenship Bureau. That's literally where I got to. I rang them, and I'm not joking. My phone told me that I was over my phone allowance in minutes, and I couldn't make the call my phone allowance in minutes is unlimited. That is what it says. It was like, check the app. I checked the app. The phone limit said unlimited. There is, the limit does not exist, okay? And it wouldn't let me call them. That was a sign. That was a bad sign. I start to spiral. I start to worry. What I had essentially done is tell myself that all of my future happiness depended on me moving to Berlin. Somewhere that let's be real, I haven't been, I went again when I was 17, I haven't been since I was 17, I've never even been clubbing there, that's half of what Berlin is, and I've not even been, and I am deciding that, you know, when I go to Berlin, I'm going to miraculously become much more attractive, um, I'm going to meet all of the best friends that I'm ever going to need, and I'm going to be in a perfect social group that they would write sitcoms about, I'm going to obviously meet the love of my life, my career is going to take off, my wardrobe is going to be perfect. I'm never going to have a bad outfit day. I'm going to get a fringe and it's going to look really good miraculously in Berlin, even though it didn't anywhere else. That is what is slowly, you know, going down the toilet in front of me as I'm frantically Googling all of this shit. And it took me a while and one or two calls to my parents to realise that Berlin is not actually what the most important thing for the next stage of my life. It's not, Berlin is not the most important thing that's happening next. The reason I am leaving London is because I 
really, really want in my life, for my entire life as a goal, I want to be able to be paid to be creative, to make things as a big part of my job and to say, I made this thing and for someone else to say, thank you so much for making this thing. Here is some money for making this thing. Or even better, I would love it if you made a thing for me. Here is some money. Please go and make a thing. And then I go and make the thing and they've already paid me before I've even made it. That's, you know, those are the two dreams. One or either or both of those would be amazing. And if I have to get a really complicated work visa and already have a big job offer and pass a fluency test and be working and showing that I'm a skilled professional in a useful industry for Germany, as much as I want Germany to have useful employees for their skilled industries, (laughs) that is not what I want for my life. That's exactly the problem that I had in London where I had no time or energy outside of caring too much about my job to do the stuff that I really wanted to do, which was to make stuff creatively. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. I think I turned that around, that realisation, in under 24 hours, which I think is pretty impressive, thanks to my parents and also my journal for the support with that. And you know what? If I have to stay in this very nice room in Manchester and work part-time and write from home for a year to get on the right path before I could move out again, I think I finally know and have accurately prioritised that that is the right decision for me, even though it feels like starting at square one it's not starting at square one, it's just starting at the beginning of a new path, having already walked other paths, and I'm just in a different bit of the forest, or whatever this metaphor is heading, but I think this whole crisis and hopeful resolution really fits with the conversation that I had with Sean, and the way that he looks at life was very comforting to me and I hope it will also be of interest and maybe some comfort to you too. So let's get into it. Hello and welcome to 25 and not famous question mark. So this is a really nice interview because as well as getting to like ask you these questions this is also kind of a catch-up for us because I haven't been able to chat to you for a while. So it's really nice that you've agreed to come and do this podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, we met probably like 10 years ago, realistically. 10, More. 11, yeah, 11, 12. Um, yeah, because I used to do, like, uh, I used to perform in shows at the all-boys school down the road, and you ran the tech for those shows. And even then, it was kind of mad to me, like, the level of tech that those shows had. Like, I remember really, like, viscerally thinking the tech is not really... Like, the performance is kind of letting down the level of tech that's happening on these shows. I remember we did one where we had to march in formation and a mirror was, like, lowered down at an angle to show the audience like the formations that we were marching in and stuff like that, which was 
very mental. And I kind of remember that you used to just stay insanely late, like programming and sorting tech and stuff like that. And then I also kind of re-met you because after university, I came to the Edinburgh Fringe and volunteered doing tech at a venue that you work at. And the story that I've heard about this is that you basically started flyering for this venue. You kind of go up to Edinburgh and this is kind of a standard thing that a few venues do. They give you accommodation and a bit of money to spend while you're there. And I heard that you went up in your sort of early teens and flyered for them and then just kind of kept going back and kept going back and working your way up. And you're now the head of production for a huge venue in Edinburgh. And that to me is just like an amazing story, especially coupled with what I already know of like how hard you worked on the tech for the very, very amateur level productions that I was in. And yeah, I'd love to just hear that kind of story from your perspective. Like is the legend that I heard on the streets of Edinburgh true? (laughs) Um, there's there's some truth to that, I guess. Uh, so, my first, so I was doing sort of very involved in the theatre uh, at the school we were doing, and I was doing a few bits sort of in other theatres locally, um, but nothing, I, I don't know, sort of too formal. And then when I was 15, a very good friend of mine took me up to the festival. Uh, she had a sort of family house there, she'd been a few times, um, and I went with me and another friend, and we were there for like four days. And it was just like madly transformatively fun. I just couldn't believe there was this many people in a city watching shows and having a drink and just seeing weird stuff. Like I remember like some of the shows I saw in pubs in my first year and sort of absolutely fell in love with it. So the next year happened. I was like, I need to go for longer. And so I managed to sort of convince a small group of our friends and we went up for like, we booked basically like a, a dorm in a hostel for two weeks. And that was sort of when I started doing some flyering for like a friend's show. There was some people like older than me at school. Um, and so How I knew that. How old were bit. you at this point when you were flying? 16. 16. So it's a slight, there's an embellishment in the myth that you've, you've been told, but it's not, okay. it's not too far off the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a really good like time again, like two weeks of just like watching shows and like, yeah, sneaking into bars and pubs and all that sort of thing, having a great time. And so then the year after, um, I was like, I need to go for the full month. Uh, and so I applied to sort of quite a few fringe companies. Uh, so like sort of Bedlam, Sea Venues and Pleasants were sort of the three that I applied for. And so I didn't necessarily have that many expectations of getting any of them. Like I was 17 and not work. Like, you know, at that point, I didn't really know what the, the bar was or what the expectation was. Uh, and I got offered a role uh, with the Pleasants. And so I volunteered there in my first year uh, in a venue called The Green. Um, which is was an in, well, was is uh, an inflatable igloo um, that was doing primarily children's programming, and I sort of never really looked back. I, I so every year would find an excuse or a reason. Like so, this was I found out I got into university during my second year. I sort of like came down overnight from Edinburgh to Manchester, got my results, got into uni, had a great time. And then I came straight back up the next day. So sort of like got my results, got on the train. And then I was there filling up Tim Key's bath for his evening performance by like seven o'clock and then actually got to celebrate that night. So um, mm. yeah. And then just sort of over time, I've slowly worked my way up the tree, I guess. So 2011 was my first festival with, with them. Yeah. That's amazing. And just like such a good story of like starting literally on the bottom rung of the ladder I mean, I feel like the one of the worst jobs anyone can do, it's almost like one of those jobs that's like, everyone should have to do this once, is flyering at the Edinburgh Fringe. 
um, because it can, and maybe this is worse when it's your show because my experience has been like having to fly for your own show and like really hoping that you get bums on seats but like just having so many people walking past you and it starts raining and all your flyers are soggy and all that kind of crap but to go from that to like like running the show is a really like incredible story does it make you reflect every year because you're always back in the same place it doing something different no, for sure. It's like you absolutely. I, I've just come back from Edinburgh today, and I was sort of telling a colleague I was with uh, there. Like, I still remember the first time, like what it means to like get off the train in Edinburgh. Like, I get excited every time I pull into Waverley, and I get this like little buzz of like we're about to do something really cool and special. Um, the nature of what we do as a company is about trying to sort of set people off on their career journey in theatre broadly. So it doesn't necessarily have to be behind stage; it can be on stage. And so like, you're constantly, like, a lot of the speeches I have to give at the start of the festival to the staff is mainly sort of predicated on, you know, the idea that once I was sat in this there and I was watching someone who's like a good friend of mine now, like give that speech. It's definitely something that's in the back of my mind. Like me and my friends, Will, used to like refer when we were doing the festival, we used to think of the people who ran it or like were in sort of roles like mine, that they were like lizard people. Like, we couldn't understand how they were so skilled and knowledgeable and like authoritative and like, ca- like caring as well that like, they could do it all and like to now I really hope that I can be that similar role for people who are just arriving I don't know whether I am but like that's that's certainly the the thing that's constantly in the back of my head definitely and I I mean I'm quite dramatic but whenever I go back somewhere like year on year or I go back to a place that I haven't been for a while I almost feel like there are like past versions of myself and when you were saying like the train pulling in like I'm almost imagining all these kind of like past ghost versions of you at all these different ages like all getting off the train and yeah how you can have all those memories. I always because it was never there was never a plan that I was like I was going to do this there was always things I like oh that'd be good and I'd like to you know maybe touch on this or I'd like to be in that role at some point, but it was never like I'm gonna see myself going down this career route because I really didn't. It wasn't. It was never the plan. And so, post festival every year was the time to actually sit back and reflect and go, "Am I enjoying this? Am I like enjoying the type of work? Am I enjoying like the the skills? Am I still being challenged?" Mainly because up until this last year, I've been freelance since I left university, so I've always been a, a jobbing production manager for the most part. Um, that was always the point where I was like, do I still want to do this? Was And, and the festival was that sort of like the, I suppose my, my year started after the festival and it culminated in the festival every year. So it, it causes a lot of reflection, I guess, every year. What was the moment then if it's never been like the plan? Yeah, because you've almost been making these steps up, which feels quite linear, but must in practice have not been at all. Because like you say, when you're freelance, nothing ever feels linear or structured at all. When was the moment where you kind of realised or maybe even admitted that this is the job, like this is the this is the career, this is the gig? Like, do you feel like you've even done that now? Do you feel like there's ever been a time where you've thought this is my career or yeah, how does that work? I think this is definitely one of my careers. Like I I got the idea that I, I want to do other things. I always remember being sort of said that on average people in the UK change careers every seven years. And I quite like the idea that that gives me like five uh, adventures to go on and I sort of feel like this theatre is potentially sort of drawing to a close at the moment but the moment I really I, I guess rolled the dice was I just finished university and at that point I was I was doing my fifth festival 
in a like working for the pleasant so at that point i'd been you know you do a show in a room and you get asked do you want to come on tour with us or we're going and taking this abroad do you want to like would you like to be part of that and every year i had to be like no i've got to i've got to go to study i want to get this degree like that's important and so then at the end of that i was like i've now turned down so much work and i've never done like that sort of like much traveling up to that point really um so i was like you know what i'm going to see if i can use this as a spring like just see what happens like, i'll give myself one year to trial this as an actual job and in that year i like after i sort of finished graduating i sort of went to australia for a long period for work i ended up then at like, sort of the end of that year going to dubai for a project i started working in some sort of really cool like theater companies that i'd like really looked up to and so I was like, actually, I can do this and I am enjoying this and it's taken me to really interesting places. And I'm, you know, at that point I was going back and I, that was my first year that I went into like an office role with the Pleasants. So like a step up for me, I say, speaking, like finding more out about the operation. So that was probably like the, like the inflection point, but it's still like annually it would be reviewed and just go, yeah, is this, is this right? Yeah. But it was almost, it sounds like it was almost frustration at, what the possible limitations were that made you go well if I'm dealing with the limitations I may as well really try and get all the possible benefits and like go for it I think it was one of those ones that it would be silly just to like having done this for so long and actually enjoyed it like as in it was always I, I think I annoyed a lot of my friends well I know a lot of my friends in general but a lot of my friends at university have been like I do this every summer because it was such a big part of like I've done a lot of like growing up as a person at that company. Like I can like really like. I mean, in terms of like seventeen to now, it's I've I've done a lot of maturing in that period of time. A lot of you know all that sort of stuff. It felt a bit silly to go like I'm enjoying this. I'm good at it. Like they want me back every year. Um, I don't know what else I would do, so I might as well give this a go like longer term. So it was it was more of a like it would be silly not to. I've got nothing to lose. Like the worst that happens is I go and like stay in Australia for three months and have a rubbish time but that like that wasn't going to happen I hope like I didn't think yeah low risk high reward yeah 100% and, it, <laughs> and, it, and, it, and I've definitely like cashed in on it yeah um something that I'm asking everyone we interview is can you remember what you were doing on the moment that you turned 20 years old I'm really like annoyed about this because I I can't re like as in like I know where I would have been like my be my birthday's in um, early January so I would have been starting my Lent term Michaelmas term whatever the second one is um, of my second year I was in college I was doing that I was I don't know I was doing like I was the JCR president at that point that's probably the only notable thing nice. about my second year. <laughs> But yeah, I, I like I can really I had a really great twenty first birthday, and I can like place some other like milestone birthdays. But twentieth is just I, I'm probably gonna find out I did something really lovely, and my friends did it for me. But I can't remember what that was. <laughs> I think that's completely understandable, and it is really interesting how birthdays mean so much or are noticed so much to different people. I guess a lot is made of like a thirtieth birthday, but maybe not as much as as a twentieth which is quite interesting. Um, also, for any listeners who aren't familiar with the Oxford system, being JCR president is actually very impressive. Um, just in case anyone listening doesn't know what that is, basically being the head of a college. As you've been working or been interested or had this hobby for so long, you've kind of been in this industry or being interested in this industry for a long time. Have you ever wanted to be famous? Can you remember ever 
having a desire to become famous? When I was first, do I, I was in shows at school and stuff, and I did like a few short films and things like that. Um, and I quickly realised that I wasn't very good at it, or at least I felt more comfortable doing what I did. Like back, I felt more like, oh, I'm good at this. Like I felt like in command of a situation, whereas uh, acting never really hit that same spot for me. And I had like, you know, I produced a couple of shows, like, like I did one at the festival a few years ago, and I've. I don't know, I've done other things in the industry that maybe like garner more like household name recognition. And I never, it, but I don't think it was ever that that would have made me famous that like, that drew me to it. It's just that like it was finding my feet in an industry that I think naturally does lend itself to people who are, are seeking fame or celebrity or things like that. I definitely, like, I don't know, it's, it's a weird thing. I don't know about like famous and so maybe it's just me like dealing with like the, um, the, the pejorative nature of that word but like I, I do want to be like known like, I want to be known as like good at what I'm doing I like the fact that like when you get recommended for jobs or you have like a certain like reputation as being good at something like I, I do that bit of I don't know pride I guess I sort of appeals to me but it's not going to be like no one no one's going to know my name at home type thing um so I guess yeah I, I don't know if that answers it but yeah but within your field it's something where you want to be acknowledged as one of the known or better people at what you're doing. Yeah, I, I think I think that's what comes. You know, definitely having been around, particularly like the context where I, where I'm currently working, like I've been there now, like for eleven years. So I am like part of the furniture and like like old reliable type thing, and that that's 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 a nice feeling to have, um, for sure. Is that something that you've thought about with moving on and what it might mean to be doing something? new like is that exciting in terms of like being able to remake a new name for yourself or is that intimidating being kind of back at the start of that journey of you know because you're right everyone at the Pleasance does know who you are like when I volunteered there everyone knows who you are is that something that you've thought about with moving into something new for sure there's a lot of like quite conflicting feelings about like leaving the place because there's a huge amount I enjoy and like it is such a big part of me I, I sort of back myself that when I go into when I find the new thing that I can thrive in something else I think what makes me good at what I do currently is actually very little to do with the theatre skills um, I think it's other things that mean that I've I've done fairly well like fairly sort of self-driven and confident and organised and other things like that so I don't, but the, I suppose the bigger is that, that I, I found the Pleasance, I fell in love with it, I've stuck with it, and then that's allowed me to do other production management and other sort of jobs and bits of lighting work that I've really enjoyed. And my biggest thing at the moment is I don't know, it's the thing that I'm going to find. Like I sort of, I think I'll be fine once I find it, but I, I, I've not found the next thing yet. But that, that's sort of like exciting and terrifying. Like some days I'm like really excited about the different things I'm looking at, and some days I'm like, I'm going to need to work it out pretty soon. Yeah, that makes sense. I think a lot of people have those kind of crossroads. You mentioned like trying different things within the industry and particularly theatre, I mean, the creative industry in general, but I've done a lot of different, tried a lot of different roles within the business of like making a theatre show. And it is so intensely collaborative and needs all those different people. I've done exactly four weeks of tech work, uh, which I think is a very generous uh, way to describe what I actually did when I was volunteering at the Pleasance, um, in terms of how much actual tech I was helping with. Uh, but I had an amazing time and I really learned how, how important the tech team is for making 
like the art of the show and I kind of think that goes under appreciated and I now kind of see tech teams a bit like an unsung hero of theatre and making the shows what they are and I just wanted to like speak to that and like what about having tried multiple roles as well what is it about the technical side of it that you fell in love with or that you really enjoy and like the venue and all of that very good question. I heard a stat the other day that I don't really believe, um, but there was the claim that basically for every one person you see on stage, there's 18 people behind them that will have put them there. It was like this, like sort of like number based on like the marketing support or the lighting or stage management or the producer, which I, I can't really believe is a stat that anyone's sort of worked out. But I, I sort of quite like it as an idea. Like it is a hugely collaborative medium, and I think particularly just because in general theatre is underfunded and under-resourced compared to film, TV, like other sort of, I suppose, visual mediums or even, you know, or storytelling sort of devices. It's, it's a very intensive process to create live performance every night. It requires a huge amount of people and a huge amount of collaboration and on like very limited resources. And that's one of the things that is like amazing about it that you, what you create out of that can be really, really special, but also, like, is one of the really limiting factors because it is just a bit relentless. In terms of, like, what drew me to it, I think one thing that's always helped to, I suppose, shade it was because my main, like, professional way in or, like, my first experience of that was through the, the festival and particularly the Pleasance, like, the, the technical teams are, are doing more than they are in other places. Like, that because of the nature of the festival, the amount of turnover and the amount of, like, company management and just the sheer number of shows, the venue teams do a huge amount of, like, the the holistic experience, really. Like, they are the front line of the festival. And they're sort of seating audiences. They're also, like, tidying up at the end of the day. They're, like, mopping stages. They are making the lights work. Like, it's, it's everything. And I think probably the jobs that I've enjoyed most in theatre are things like, um, I've sort of gravitated towards production management. I like that being like intimately involved in like all of it. Like as in you're just sort of, you've got fingers in all the pies of the production, you know, you know what the cast requirements are, you know what dressing rooms they need, but you also know uh, like what the lighting and power requirements are on stage. You know what the, you go and sit in the auditorium and you look at sight lines and you make sure that the audience experience is going to be a good one. Like you're sort of, you're doing all of it, when I have to explain to people who've got like no concept of how the industry works, like very crudely I sort of say that a producer's job is to like raise the money and the production manager's job is to spend the money. You are gonna steer the project in a lot of ways and that, you know, companies split that responsibility in different ways and that's not always the fit and I'm sure there's lots of people who would disagree with that sort of categorization, but I think that that's always what I found really interesting was I got to see everything and then when we put a show on at the end or we made a show you know you know why the costumes look like that you know why the venue's been laid out how it has like you've you really know everything about the project and I, I think that's that's great even listening to you talking about it like makes me feel excited again because I have that exact same thing and what I think for me is so enticing about theatre is the liveness of all this kind of meticulous planning thinking about the sight lines and thinking about this and thinking about that and how are the performers feeling? How are the crew feeling? How's everyone doing up until that moment? And then it just happens and it either works or it doesn't or it works to whatever degree and then it's done and then it all starts again. And almost the powerlessness of in that moment that whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen because there are other people involved 
and it's this collaboration that makes things unpredictable that is really stressful but like really exciting and I think part of why people love going back certain people really love that it is like powered by adrenaline like there's nothing like it being the moments before a show starts you can be the most like confident like I've done it a million times but that I still think you know every time you open a show or every time you know like the festival opens it's absolute butterflies because you're like oh we've not finished that or we've not done this or we've got to hide that little whatever it is or you know we've got to, the show must go on type mentality it like it lends itself to you know excitement and like high energy and whenever I've done like work in tv and film it I find that the work there's there's still really exciting. There's lots of things happening, but it's the the pace of work is really interesting because a lot of the time you're you're waiting for to to mobilise and to start doing something. Whereas in theatre, you just like you're there's like a big clock just constantly ticking down until the show starts, and that's always in the background. Like when we start prepping the festival, even in like December January, there is a clock that says in eight months we're going to let thousands of people into tens of rooms and we're going to put on hundreds of shows every day like there's no like getting around that like that is going to happen and that's that that's exciting yeah and it brings so many very different kinds of people together because I'm thinking about when I've taken shows and in December January I'm thinking right in eight months I've got to have made have written and made this show there are people doing so many very very different jobs but everyone's looking at the same clock and something about that really like brings people together in a way that's I find quite interesting and quite like exhilarating. It puts everyone on the same page in a way. It feels like within this industry and this moment and this sort of like fringe theatre and theatre in general, not to put words in your mouth, you don't necessarily have to agree with me, but it feels like you're doing about as successfully within that structure as could reasonably be expected. You are head of production at The Pleasance which is the biggest venue in Edinburgh in terms of people through doors, I believe. Do you feel successful and how do you then kind of set goals? Thank you, I guess, as a sort of starting point. Um, I, I think there's like a few ways to it. I think, I think firstly, a lot of people, even within the industry, would challenge the notion that that is success. Like, from like one side of things, because, you know, the fringe theatre is is the entry point if you were to look at it as you know fringe theater mid-scale touring work and then like sort of commercial west end that side of things like i know i dabbled doing a lot of like the number two bands and i've done like quite well in the number three bands but there are better paying jobs at like in the industry and there are like other routes through it but i do think of it as success i mean i i went in and i had like not as i said i didn't have a career path i did start to have I would like to have achieved this, 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 like I had like a few sort of, I don't know, things on the board, I guess. And, you know, one of them was that I would love to do this job one day. I really looked up to and respected the people who'd done it previously. And so there was a big part of me that was like, I want to, you know, that same thing I said, I want to be in that position and hopefully be that same figure that they were to me. But as well as that, like, you know, there was things like I wanted to like tour internationally and like I've done that pretty fully I'd say like I've not ticked off every continent but I've done quite a lot of them I wanted to take a show into the national and then that was a really interesting moment where I, I was working on a show that was going into the national and then sort of Covid happened um, and I made the decision to sort of step away from it which I still think was the right decision but that will always be one of those ones that was like that wasn't the list I was in line to do it and I was quite excited about it 
but just the the pandemic I think flipped so many things on its head and that was sort of me starting to question whether I wanted to still be doing this for a number of years um so I sort of stepped away from that so like I've ticked off quite a lot of things that were on my like theatre bucket list that I'm sure there's plenty more that are sort of left undone and there's definitely when I speak to you know uh colleagues um or like sort of artists there's like there's still things that I'd love to work on there's still shows coming up all the time that I'm like that sounds like a really amazing project or I'd love to go and work in a different country in a theatre and sort of like actually be a receiving house or yeah so there's still plenty I'd like to do but I feel like I've ticked through quite a lot of the things that I set out to do. And you mentioned it a little bit there but how did you start to come to the realisation that it was the right time for you to think about moving into something new and when you've made that decision how do you then start to formulate a plan for that new sort of path? Uh, plans still being formulated so I, I'll, I guess I'll let you know once like I sort of come together. Um, I've painted I think a very like positive view of the industry and there are things I absolutely love about it but I think I suppose my love has always like continued to grow but if not like sort of plateau at a high level but I suppose over time, my frustrations with it have risen steadily. So as in, it's sort of getting to the point where they're sort of starting to meet that level of love. Like, you know, it it's amazing going away on tour and like being in South Korea and eating yummy food and all that sort of stuff or going to Edinburgh for two months. I mean, like it's a huge time sink, just the festival. But like it makes it makes life hard in terms of like how like if you look at like hourly like sort of rates it's something that i think theater's still struggling to contend with really i mean particularly at the sort of like the tiers that i'm interested in and i find enjoyable like the type of work it's not compensated like un- unbelievably well um it requires like a lot of just touring in general means that you you know you're your friends become your colleagues, which is wonderful. And like, I've got some brilliant friends who are colleagues. But it also means that you, it's, it, that's a really like tricky line when like you're so intimately involved in what you do just to start setting boundaries and also to put aside time for, because you're like, oh, I hung out with my friends. But actually what you did was you worked a week and then you didn't actually do that time where you spent time with your friends. Even if they are your colleagues, like I had a really recent experience with someone who I worked with like, so close to like, the person I like I spoke to most often in like a work context and we just started hanging out again because we stopped working together and that was like so lovely but you sort of you miss that so there was quite a lot of things and there was a lot of frustrations with what I was doing and like what it was impacting on in my broader like wider life and I think a lot of it was tied up into like that show at the National it was originally meant to be like in it probably would have happened by now, actually, if COVID hadn't happened. Yeah, it would have. Um, whereas now it would be in like 18 months. So when I was sort of sat there in 2020, it's like, can I spend four months, four years, sorry, like not treading water, but like waiting to tick one more thing off the bucket list. Like I'm going to get itchy and I want to do something else. So I suppose the first part of a plan was I lost 18 months-ish of work when when the pandemic happened as a freelancer. And so I decided, like, I need to not not try and make a living for a year because there's not going to be enough work in the theatre industry. I need to just pretend it doesn't exist. So I, I still had a few offers. And, like, some some companies were absolutely, like, delightful to me in terms of how they looked after us. Like, they really outdid themselves. But I was just like, I can't... Um, I, d- I don't want to engage in trying to scrabble together enough. So I was like, I, I went and moved to Amsterdam and I studied my master's. And that was a bit of, like, a reset moment just to go... 
let's experience somewhere new, let's get back to a different set of skills, let's read books in a sort of academic way again. And that was like really fulfilling and it was nice just to do that like, that break, I guess. Um, so that was like the first thing. And then now it's sort of just being good with deadlines. So I sort of, I sort of indicated that sort of this would be my last festival, which is a really weird sentence to have. And I suppose like in the back of my head, I've always got this, the fallback that if I if I decide, if I go and change and I do something like and I discover actually I was already doing the thing that I loved and I should never have left, it will still be there. I could very easily stay just biding my time doing one more festival, but actually this is like, I need to go, no, this is my last, and now let's see what happens in the space that I leave myself. Definitely. I really relate to that. I was kind of telling you before we started this, I've also recently made a decision to resign from my role and I'm leaving like my my tenancy is up and I've kind of timed it all to not get a new tenancy and to leave London and go away and sort of try to reset and then maybe live in another country and and see what work I can get there and that that kind of thing and it's something that I've known always really that I wanted at some point to go and live abroad and that as you were saying earlier like I want to do multiple things with my life but when you enjoy something or it's a stable work environment or there's there's these perks it can be really hard to step away and I think part of what you were talking about at the very start with like that annual review is something that is so easy not to do because sometimes you don't want to hear the results of your annual review um because it's harder to make those changes but you're right that there's always the possibility of going back if what you find isn't as good um i think a lot of people stay in the same lane because they're worried about what leaving means yeah and i think it's worth saying as well i'm I'm very lucky to be in that position i'm very privileged in many many different like sort of strands of my life and i'm also like i don't have a family that i really need to support and like i'm lucky i hugely fortunate that i can be it's like i don't fancy doing this anymore i want to do something else i'm i'm very very aware that you know it's not as easy as I'm making it out for some people to contemplate a decision like this. That's what a lot of people say about their 20s as well. It's like a good, what I'm thinking for myself is, I don't know what is gonna, what responsibilities I might have in another year, but right now I don't have them. So let me go now. How have your relationships changed over your 20s? And I'm kind of talking both work relationships friendships romantic relationships because I think these change a lot in people's 20s and there's also often a lot of breaking up of relationships both friendship and romantic so also uh do you have any good breakup advice for when those things happen I think it's so like it's hard because I, I I'm 28 now compared to that so I was 20 hours at university so I think environment is just a hugely different thing like so you know I think university particularly like at Oxford where I was was like very like very college-based and very insular and very sort of focused and I think you you have a lot of friends just because of proximity or happenstance I always think about like what happened when like I made I've got some amazing friends but I think if we hadn't lived on the same corridor or if I'd lived next to that person or if I'd happened to go to the same lecture as that like it all could have ended up really differently like you make really like formative relationships by chance which is amazing and that is that the nature of it whereas I think now partly due to like time partly due to just like the fact that I've got an amazing group of friends it's that sort of thing like you 
I, I think I'm much more conscious of like where I'm spending my time and energy. Like there's less of it. Like, I'm not just like pretending to read a book for five days. I know I also found that the pandemic as well was a real moment of me just going, uh, actually I'll, I'll go back a sort of step till I get to the pandemic point because there's like something that's sort of, the other thing that's happened is is that I've done a lot of living all over the place. Um, so like I've got a really good gang of people in Australia who I really like and I text every now and then and I've got uh, really good friends in the States from when I was doing a project in Dubai and I've got like, there's like pockets of people, like a great friend in Italy that we used to do like tours together and there's people all over the world that like, there was a sort of point where I was like, I could now like find a bed in quite a lot of major cities at this point, like I'd, I'd be okay, which is a, a wonderful feeling. Um, but it also meant that you had this sort of like, the pe friends were almost seasonal in that I'd be in Australia for three months, so that'd be my gang and like we'd hang out. And then I'd leave and then we'd stay in touch. But obviously you're not going out to the pub. You're not going and watching a show. You're not giving them a ticket to that thing. And so it was quite uh, transient. And so I think that the, the pandemic point, which is what I was getting to, was I started to realise, because you, you didn't have as much to do, or at least I personally didn't, there was that less like, I don't know, going out and that sort of thing. So you were just spending, you were choosing to like go, let's do a Zoom or let's do a thing or let's watch a show at the same time or whatever it was like you were you were being more selective in a way like it was less being decided by who was like and so I found that was really illuminating because I I think I've I sort of discovered a little bit through that like who like my like absolute best friends were and like who were like still good friends like I, I, it's not like but like we're not we're not texting every other day like that and that's fine like it's good to know they're there and I, I know I could rely on them if it came to it but they're not they're not like the core of it if that makes sense and I think I always felt because I was away a lot I felt I had to like work overtime so whenever I'd come back to like I'm in London for two weeks let's see you all and I felt like this furious need to like get everyone in and I, I would always come back from every trip with like a list of people I had to catch up with and it started to feel like I, I just was spread too thin I was like it was absolute quantity over quality yeah um and I think the the nicest or like most nicest and most horrible things that ever got said to me was by a really, really good friend of mine. And we went on holiday together over lockdown. And it, so we, you know, I've been friends with them since school. So I've known them a very long time. And she said like, this is the first time in years that you feel present. And I think that's a lot of things were going on and like changing in my life at that sort of point. But actually the realisation that like I'd not been a very good friend was like was a really like sort of sobering thing. But also like it was hugely nice for someone to go like to recognise it and go, Oh, you are here now and that's like this is why we like you and um that that's that was really lovely, but it was a real moment of me going, actually and that it's tied up in like it's probably like a therapist session actually to talk through all of this but like the actual like that moment of someone saying that to me was, was a really like humbling thing and it sort of it did influence quite a lot of decisions after that point just being like where do I want to spend my energy maybe I'll do breakup advice if that was the next bit of the question yeah yeah please as a surprise to no one, uh, traveling the world and being away like every other week makes relationships uh, quite difficult. Mm -hmm. um, I can I've, see that. I've had some like amazing ones, and like I like to think in general that like I, with a couple of exceptions, like, I'm I'm like in a very good place with my exes, and like I think we could talk, and like some of them are still very good friends. I think it just in terms of that like 
it's not so much for breakup advice it's just relationship advice like it if you can't be honest with the person and there's just no point doing it so if you feel like an agenda that you need to say a certain thing or act a certain way it's never going to go well and so you know be, be honest with how you're feeling and how you think about them and i i, I think that's the only way so yeah i, I think that's my relationship advice, but I don't think it's terribly good relationship advice. I think it is good relationship advice and it applies to friends as well. And I think mm. as things change, particularly in your 20s, people who have been friends are going in really different directions. And sometimes there is this pressure to try and remain a certain kind of way for certain friendships. But I've found, and this actually happened in the pandemic for me as well, I reconnected with a group of friends who I used to hang out with when I was at school and who I totally lost touch with thinking more about who was in front of my face. And then during the pandemic, no one was in front of my face. And so someone from that period of my life who I'd completely kind of lost touch with and stopped bothering with sat us all up to do like a Zoom quiz and we all started doing them. And now we all still regularly hang out and they're probably the group of people who I now see most regularly. And if the pandemic hadn't happened... I might never have re-established that connection. And even though I was friends with them when I was 16, I don't feel that I need to be a 16-year-old version of myself with them. Whereas I have friends from more recently where I feel like more of a pressure to be the version of myself that made friends with them than who I am now. Do you, do you feel like you... you that sort of like, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask questions. Um, you are. <laughs> Do you, do you feel like, as in, I, I'm subconsciously aware of the idea that like I have different roles in different groups, and sometimes, I think, sometimes the role you're cast in is something that you can either enjoy being or not being, like, so, as in, like, as in, like, my role in this group is, I don't know, I'm the organised, boring one, or I'm the, like, I think if I ask different groups of friends, I'd love for people in like different continents to meet each other, it, weirdly, and actually no, I don't know if I would love them to speak about me, but like that idea that I think they'd have very different understandings of who I was or what the, my priorities were, I think, maybe, maybe not. I totally feel that way. And it's something that I am sort of slowly trying to change a little bit. I think everyone has it a bit, but I have quite a people pleasing tendency. And so I tend to adapt to who I'm with and the role that would work well. I was talking to a friend earlier actually today about how our group of friends in their other groups are all the court jester of their other friends. But then when we're all together, it's just a room of court jesters. Right, okay. And I was talking about how I was at a house party last night and I had to be very aware when I was talking to people that if I didn't find a reason to stop speaking no one was going to interrupt me and I could just go on with my anecdote forever and ever and no one was going to come in with an anecdote of their own. Mm. And then we were talking about how different that is when we all hang out because everyone is desperately waiting to tell a story. Like all swallowing each other's air time. Okay, yeah. Yeah. What I'm trying now to do is work out a more stable idea of myself on my own as almost like a barometer for how I am with other people. I don't know if that's something that you get with... I guess yours is an even more extreme example because, yeah, these people are never going to meet. It's totally different context. And for some people, that might be like an opportunity to try out this other version of themselves. 
I think I did really enjoy it when I was doing it. And like, it's, I suppose like, I mean, one of the things I'm terrible for is whenever I go somewhere else, I'm really bad at like affecting the local accent. My grandma commented on it once that I sat like, why was I putting on an Australian accent? And I was like, I don't know. I've never like, I've just come here for a holiday. Well, I, this is actually like a, I, whenever there's an opportunity to talk about this, I cannot not talk about it, but there's a linguistic theory about this called politeness theory. And people are split into either converges or diverges. And if you meet someone with a different accent to you, you will either converge to establish similarity and community, or you will diverge to establish your character and to establish difference and your sort of personality and stake. And I am, I think, about as converging as it goes. And one of the things I'm actually worried about with recording this podcast is that I just change my accent totally depending on who I'm speaking to and I can't help it um, to the point that actually I so I left um, my school which was a private school and went to a state college when I was about 16 and my parents hadn't paid for me to go to my school and I just completely changed my voice while I was there and I think they were a bit confused about what happened and I went to the state college and my accent kind of went back to what it had been as a kid and then I went to Leeds Festival and bumped into a bunch of boys from MGS on the final night and hung out with them. And then my dad picked me up in the morning and drove me home. And my parents were like holding in laughter as I was telling them all about the festival. And then they went, didn't happen to bunch, bump into a bunch of MGS boys last oh, night, did really? you? Really? <laughs> that's terrible. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, that's fun. No, I, I'm, I'm really bad for it. Like, it's... I'm, one of the people that people in Edinburgh hate or Scotland hate, but I'm like an English person who absolutely affects a Scottish lil um, because I, I think it's a lovely accent, but also I, I spend a lot of time up there and speaking to a lot of Scottish people. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm the worst on that metric for sure. And I wonder if it does speak to that social butterfly thing because everything you've been saying in that regard, I really resonate with as well. I feel like I'm exactly the same. And I do think for a period of time, probably in your early 20s, it is quite fun and it is good to be like, well, I don't know if I enjoy this, so maybe I'll go see if I enjoy it and I'll just try on that hat and see if I like it. And only recently have I been like, no, I need to stop saying yes <laughs> to doing things that I actually now have found out that I don't enjoy. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay, the next thing I want to talk about. Ah, yeah. I obviously worked the festival as we were talking about and... I met, obviously, a lot of comedians who I was crewing for and performers. And it was a really weird experience to be working so intimately with people who I would consider probably on a low level, not internationally, not household names, but to be famous to me, mm. people who I had heard of, and particularly to fam people who were famous at the Fringe. And that experience, in some ways, was really exciting and people were really lovely. And in other ways it kind of um, demystified that side of fame a little bit. Like I remember there was a comedian who was doing a show who had sort of like won big the year before and everyone wanted to see her show. And she was just a huge, huge diva. And I kind of in my team um, got sent as most affable team member to tell her whenever something bad happened. <laughs> Right. Okay. Um, the because guy. they wanted okay. me to break to break the news to her, and her team also were kind of. She had like a team of people with her, and they were all sort of scared of her as well. So we would sort of split that between us. But she would hold up the show to like 
I don't know, just because she was nervous or because she had forgotten she chipped a nail or stuff like that all the time and people would be waiting outside in the rain. And I don't know, it, it did kind of change a little bit my opinion of success in that way and that these people, you know, before I think I'd just seen them as like incredibly talented and then I sort of saw a more rounded picture of them as people who are also nervous and all those kind of things. And I wondered if how working so closely with people who are either famous or who are certainly trying to become famous or interested in that side of success, how that has affected your beliefs around success and fame. Okay. I think there's... Yeah, I'll, I'll say it. I think comedians in general, I think I think it, it's it's a fascinating profession that is probably due like a lot of, uh, I don't know, papers being written about the type of people it attracts. I think there's something near psychopathic about the the idea that you think you can make people laugh for a living. Like, I, I really appreciate it. I think there's like, I'm not like anti, but I think that's a really, in the festival, that's a really like fascinating, like it, that the idea that you can you can force a room to laugh and that you, I, I think I think it attracts a certain type of person. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I think there's I I because I think you know there's been quite a few people I think who I'd say I've worked with who are like now like pretty stratospherically famous. Like um, I did Hannah Gadsby's show in like the uh, like I did Nanette sort of when it was sort of in oh its God. first run in Melbourne. Um, and I, like that that I still like. Hannah is like so so lovely and yeah I, I I had like such a lovely time meeting them and like they 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 are like uh, a, a bit odd and they didn't really let me know anything about the shit not that they should do but basically the first time I watched it I watched it as an audience member and I was just like I thought I was just watching a comedy show and I was like wow okay this is going to be quite the month but like what what they were putting themselves through on stage was like was was unreal but like. Uh, then they that show like blew up like went absolutely like mega i think hannah was a really good example of like it didn't it didn't change that sort of perception in my head or like so so i think that there's some people who i think it doesn't it doesn't change at all they are still very much like powerfully themselves and i think i think that's they're really lovely but there are definitely examples of you know i've seen some people when they were in like the 50 seat room that are you know were very lovely at the time and it was it and what you realize is that actually when what the fame allowed them to do was that sort of i suppose the facade came down actually they could be quite demanding or diva like or anything else so um it's hard to know like did fame change them or did fame just allow them to act more like they were originally like what what way round is it i like what you said the potential that for some people it is a dropping of a facade or the effects of suddenly not needing to necessarily be nice and what I think I experienced was I now see her on podcasts and on tv shows and do, becoming a household name and all the other comedians seem to get on with her really well I mean I know this might all be a facade but I wonder whether there's a difference between how people treat you when you're someone who is going to put you on their podcast and put you on their tv show or whatever it is mm. and when you're a volunteer member of a crew who it doesn't matter if they shit on you because they're in a bad mood and actually that's the perspective that you get when and I get it at work as well like when you work in an assistant or an officer role in a theatre and you're dealing with talent like it's a very similar interaction and it, it can be really revealing. 
you know that old like adage is like you 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 don't learn anything about a person by the way they interact with their peers and their superiors. It's by like how they interact with you know that those beneath them or whatever in the ranking. And I suppose like being in like a crew position, you can very quickly like you you'll, you'll experience that. And I suppose it's quite a good gauge and just seeing like whether people how people talk to other people and those that they sort of deem less than. I mean, I think that the notion of that is that the idea that you could deem anyone less than yourself is indicative of the type of person that that is. Like. I think, you know, the people who just sort of chat to you, I can think that's like some acts who I met like way, way, way back when and like they still like interact in the same way now as then and they might have been on the telly now, but like they're still just chat to you like you're a human, which is, you know, how it should be. Completely. And, and this happens at all levels of success because I remember <laughs> really distinctly thinking in my first year at Oxford, how would some of these people treat me if I was working on a bar? serving them like how nice are these people necessarily being to me because I also got into this university and that's not and then I was just like well I need to stop talking to anyone who makes me feel like that um do you think that theatre tech is accessible and on that kind of follow-up do you have any behind the scenes advice for people who might be listening who think having listened to you talk about it that it's something they might be interested in um it's easy to get involved. It is hard to like support yourself through it. Like as in, there are particularly at the moment a raft of jobs available. Like that, the industry has been massively uh, gutted by people stopping in the pandemic. By people going, actually, driving this van is much easier than pushing flight cases. I'll stick doing this. Uh, to people going into TV and film, which are, I would say, much more emergent markets. And like there is a lot more work and a lot better paid work. So at the moment, you can go on any theatre site and you could have picked up like three full weeks of work. I, I don't like not to undervalue it, but without too much experience like there there is near desperation at the moment for staff. I, I've sort of got like quite a lot of views on that and so sort of what needs to happen sort of accordingly. But basically, there is very easy to get into it. Supporting yourself and like taking the step, like uh, it's something like seventy percent of like the British theatre workforce is self-employed, and that's that's quite exposing for quite a lot of people. Um, like not having a regular paycheck, the fact that you're constantly working, you're you're always on display. Like you can never just be confident that I'll get a paycheck next month. You need to know like what the next thing is, how do I speak to that producer, how do I line myself up, you hear about the show next year, so you sort of speak to them about that, and have you found the person yet? It's a real, like, it takes a lot of energy, I think, being a freelancer. There's plenty of ways in, but I wouldn't say at the moment, it's the, the, the starting point is necessarily that sustainable or sensible, like a lot of contracts are based on like set a number of hours a week, and actually a lot of the time that doesn't represent the, the number of hours that are put into it. I mean, as like, on the other end of it, like, you know, as a theatre maker yourself, like, you're aware of, like, just how the ratio of time put in compared to, like, what that is as an hourly rate, it, it's a joke. It doesn't, it doesn't quantify. So it's, it's hard. And so a lot of the time, and this is what causes the accessibility issues in theatre, how are you meant to do that if you don't have a family home that you can base yourself out of? How are you meant to do that if you don't have a friend in London who's got a spare room because of X, Y, Z, or whatever it is? Like, it's really... You know, it does rely on that a lot of the time, which is is a problem. Uh, like, it's mm. not a good thing. To put, like, a more positive spin on it, if I have, like, managed to convince anyone that it is worthwhile getting involved, um, 
there are like plenty of ways of getting into it. There are, you know, there is the classically trained route of going to like a drama school, and and that is, you know, I still say a lot of people who are working in theatre did follow that route. I personally didn't, and I'm like quietly of the opinion that I like I do think that people who've done theatre work for three years are better placed than people who've done drama school for three years. Um, but again, like the jury's out and I could speak to hundreds of colleagues who think the exact opposite of me and that there's a lot of value in classical training. So like other opinions are available. In terms of like that starting opportunities, like whether it's like your local venue, like your local, like, you know, it's very easy to pick work up around like other commitments. So like, you know, a lot of the time for theatres, they're looking for people to do the load in at the start of the week and the load out at the end of the week. This isn't like a technical sense. So, like you know, that is two days work, but then you're starting to sort of see how shows get made and put together. Uh, and you can sort of ingratiate yourself with like a, a, a house and then hopefully if you're good then you get offered a you know a more regular part-time basis or whatever it is so there's a sort of a way of building up there there are then like you know I started through festivals and I still think festivals the the fringe festival as far as I can say is like the best training environment you could ever possibly have like we regularly have people who are at drama school or they are in like a you know their first few years of their career and they come to the festival you know, you get exposed to working with like 10 companies in a venue like intimately on a day-to-day basis and you can see how they work, how they operate, like how, what the difference between a dance company is and a theatre company and a comedy company and a clowning company. There's different ways, like theatre tech isn't just one unified thing um, and there's a lot of different ways you can, and so I think the festival is a great place for, yeah, exposing yourself to that and like, you know, like sort of at the Pleasance and one of the reasons I, I love working there is the idea that we do a large part of what we do is about hopefully training people and giving people skills that allow, and experiences that allow them to then build a professional career out of it so it is that like fledgling place so like for people like me who are 17 and sort of vaguely know what a light is but they don't they don't know actually how to do it in a sort of in a more meaningful context it was invaluable like I'm completely a product of, of that of that festival environment. Amazing. I think that was a really comprehensive answer on both the positive and the, the drawbacks, which don't get talked about enough, to be honest. The last thing that I wanted to ask you, which is a bit of a philosophical question, um, is about the fact that there's a very big deal made about the decade of your 20s and almost a pressure to be have become yourself by the end of your 20s to then go and sort of live your life do you in this sort of current state of being feel like yourself i I slightly like i don't know contend the question i don't think it's a case of like becoming yourself i think basically it's about being more relaxed about i don't know discovering or whatever it is it's that sort of thing like did you discover or did you invent gravity like it's the like it's yourself is always there you like that you do have you know you might change and shift over time but like it's all it's all there and I definitely feel like I'm getting closer to it I feel a bit more relaxed and comfortable in my own skin like there's definitely like not to make it all like rosy there's plenty of days where I do question it all but like a big thing for me has been giving myself the time to live act myself I, I suppose so much for quite a long time I was generally working like six days a week there was a sort of 18 month period where I didn't really take a holiday. Um, and so you don't like at that pace, you don't have the time or the energy to like do the things that bring you joy or see the people that, you know, give you purpose and value. So I think I've got much better at that and much more disciplined about making sure I do give that time. Like I like 
fantasy books. I like basketball. I like Dungeons and Dragons. Like there's that you and you need to like you need to work quite hard. I I'd say in like a it, particularly the industry I find myself. I'm sure it's true of many other jobs about being disciplined about it. It's just like no no on Monday nights I play basketball. There's no ifs buts maybe that's what I do. Like I'm not gonna go do that. And you know similarly you need to like I, and I think I've got much better about setting those rules, which has then allowed me to be myself more which has hopefully made me happier net like as a result of that so um i think the the wrong thing is that like ever think that you're a finished product so i think there's like lots of things that like i found even in the last like two years that like were, like hobbies or like i don't know pastimes that i've actually i've gone oh wow like i didn't know this exists so i didn't know this i was going to enjoy this as much i one of the <laughs> i had a really weird thing I, I discovered basketball over like lockdown and I've become like weirdly obsessed. Like I, I watch it, I consume it, I read about it. I'm really into it. And I've just constantly got this like feeling in the back of my head. It's like, I wish I'd found this at like school or university. I'm, I'm quite tall, but I'd have been good. I'd, I'd have been like a good level. And it's like, it's the first thing in like, because I remember like when you're like 18, you always like reflect on whoever's in the World Cup squad that year and you go like, they're literally playing in like the World Cup finals or something. You're like, that's mad that they're that age or, you know, Dewey Leapers that like younger than me or whatever it is. And you're like, that's terrible. Like, how have I allowed that to happen? <laughs> but this was the first time where I was genuinely like, oh, I've missed that. I can't be a good basketball player. Like, I've missed the boat on that. I can only do this for fun. And it, that, that was a really weird such a weird thing to think that like as in like there are like it's sort of that's locked off to me like that was a different a different road or path and I've I've missed it and that's I, I, I was quite I suppose like uh, upset about it which is mad like I don't know what I would have changed in the past to allow that to happen like, I'm not I'm I'm happy with the way things have gone uh, like for the most part so but it was this real weird moment like I've that that's a uh, something I've I've squandered or I missed out on or like why have I not done that so yeah, still plenty of time to make some new different decisions. On the basketball thing, I wonder if maybe because what you've done over the last like 10 years is turn a passion and a hobby into a viable career, it's hard now to find hobbies where there isn't that impulse in your head to be like, how do I do this professionally? And that, that's gone, whereas it might always have just been um, I, th hobby. I think that's very fair and like very astute because I actually think I, I have started looking at like jobs in like basketball like it's so stupid it, I, I literally know nothing about it in the grand scheme of things but I was like looking at like could I move to the states and like work for an NBA franchise and I was like no you shouldn't like that's a really stupid idea but um but yeah I, I think that there's probably a lot of truth in the idea that I've like a passion has turned into a job and not like passions can be passions and they don't have to be paid. And that's that's a really important thing for me to remember. Yeah, and very weirdly, I was interviewing my brother this morning who's been playing basketball for like 20 years and he's 6'4 and also grew up and played for Stockport nationally and, and all this kind of stuff. And I grew up watching Coach Carter um, every, like over and over again, because that was what he was watching. And he genuinely wanted to be in the NBA, but now he lives in Falmouth and plays in like the Truro Men's League and is like the president of that and he's not particularly like um like great or physically fit when he started he had to play in like the B team for Truro or whatever but he's just like it's so good for me just to have it even though it will never be a career he always wants to be involved in it at some level because it's so good for him 
mentally and he meets loads of people and he even said he might move to Sweden next year and he's already looked up in the city like what's the basketball leaks because it's a way that he could go anywhere and he would always have that thing and I think it's really interesting that hobbies can be can mean so much without being your source of income yeah I'll have to hit your brother up yeah yeah you'll have to message him for sure <laughs> a little bit of 1v1 in Greater Manchester yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Sean. I really appreciate it. And it's been so interesting to hear what I knew of as a story, like how that has sort of expanded out for me now. So, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.